0: Welcome to Legalese. At LegalEase, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner.
1: Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship
2: and poor critical thinking.
0: No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all from yours truly, soon to be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk.
2: We hope you enjoy the show.
0: This is Amina Kishan Kamal, and you're listening to Legalese. This episode is on mending relationships in the community. Where do we go from here? And it is in partnership with ASU Law's Academy for Justice. I will act as moderator, and the rest of the episode will be introduced by and led by two co hosts today, Don Walton and Andre Anderson. So, Don and Andre, I'll be handing this over to you.
3: Hi, I'm Don Walton. I'm the executive director for the Academy for Justice. Um, the Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center here at um, the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. And our mission is to connect academic research um, with on-the-ground policy reform.
4: Hello everyone, I'm Andre Anderson. I'm a commander with the city of Glendale, Arizona, Police Department. Uh, the prior interim police chief from Ferguson, Missouri. With that being said, I'd like to go ahead and start introducing our guests. And I want to start off with Chief Jerry Williams, who was appointed police chief of the Phoenix Police Department in October 2016. She oversees the largest police department in the state of Arizona, which provides law enforcement services to the fifth largest city in the United States. Chief Williams is a 28-year veteran and an accomplished Police Executive. Welcome to our panel. I also want to introduce Chief Renee Hall. Chief Renee Hall is also a very highly accomplished and experienced law enforcement executive. She has more than 20 years as a public servant, and she is appointed as the Chief of Police in Dallas in December of 2017. Welcome, Chief Hall.
5: Welcome. Thank you.
4: And last but not least, I want to also acknowledge Linda R. Williams, who is currently the noble first national president and is the incoming national president for the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. Mrs. Williams was also a deputy assistant director, retired with the United States Secret Service, and is currently a professor with the Criminal Justice Administration at Middle Tennessee State University. Dawn, if you wouldn't mind helping us introduce Mr. Ben or Professor Ben McJunkin.
3: Yeah, so Ben McJunkin is an Associate Professor of Law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And um, Professor McJunkin writes on topics in criminal law and procedure, And is is particularly interested in the relationship between criminal law's normative aims and the social construction of gender and sexuality. Um, His recent work has appeared in the New Criminal Law Review, the Michigan Law Review, the Wisconsin Law Review, and the Columbia Journal of Gender and Law. And prior to joining the law school, Mr. McJunkin was an alumni fellow at the University of Michigan Law School and represented clients in pre-indictment criminal investigations and related litigation. So we're very happy to have him with us for the, at, at the Academy for Justice and on this podcast today.
4: Thank you, Don. Well, wonderful. I think we can dive into our first questions if you all are ready. And I'll have the first round of questions. So let me start with this. And feel free to answer the questions as you deem appropriate. Obviously, we want to hear from each of you. So I will start with the first question, which is, given the current concerns facing the profession of policing and the ongoing divide in this country, what steps do you believe are necessary to build trust in the future?
5: I think I'll start. This is Chief Hall. and one, let's let's start by saying that uh, this current climate is nothing new for us uh, as African Americans. Uh, we recognize that there has been uh, some injustices in law enforcement for very for a very long time. Uh, when we do our history and recognize where law enforcement began with slave patrols, and also recognizing that. We're about 53, 54 years right out of Jim Crow, that there are some systemic that exist in law enforcement. And I think everyone on this call and on this panel today uh, has been championing 21st century policing and moving our police departments forward. Uh, And that work has been done uh, for many years. And so, although we want that to be the narrative, we recognize we're not where we truly wanna be and where we should be in law enforcement. Uh, There's an ongoing divide because there has been broken relationships in the African-American and in the Latino communities uh, for many years. There has been a uh, desire and various opportunities and engagement to repair those damages, but again, Whenever there is an incident, uh, George Floyd, May 25th of 2020, uh, will forever have changed the trajectory of law enforcement and how our community responds to law enforcement. And so each time these things happen, we have a responsibility as police executives, as community members, and as academics to ensure that we acknowledge what is taking place. And what is currently taking place is 800,000 members of law enforcement watched an individual who wears the same uniform that we wear murder an individual. And it's unacceptable. No more than the unacceptable actions that of John in the city of Dallas happened in 2018, 2019. So, and we could go on with Tamir Rice, and we could go on uh, on and on and name multiple individuals, individuals who have been victims of law enforcement. And we have to acknowledge that. You ask, how do we address the ongoing divide? We have to own, acknowledge, apologize, and work to move forward if we're going to ever build these relationships because there are some injustices that have happened. Now, does that speak to every individual in law enforcement? No, it does not. It does not say that law enforcement is a bad entity. It does not say that we are the enemy of the people. What it says is that some of our actions have been unacceptable. And in some instances, we have a system or a justice system that has not held individuals accountable to the acceptable level of our community. And we have to do something to change that. And I think the way we change that is to actually listen to the individuals who we serve. Uh, A lot of us, uh, I know Chief Williams uh, very well, as well as first national president, uh, Linda Williams, very, very well. And I know that in our roles, we have done a lot of work in building partnerships and community engagement Uh, but now there must be more. We have to be intentional about the general orders and policies that we put in place. But beyond policy, we have to be intentional about changing the culture of our organizations, because culture eats policy for breakfast. And so we have to acknowledge that there are some challenges in our organization and make the necessary steps to fix those broken cultures or those that have existed for many many years throughout our organizations so we have to be willing to do the work we have to be intentional about it and it can't be from our perspective we have to give everyone a seat at the table being inclusive of everyone and how everyone feels and what they want to see different in our organizations and make those necessary adjustments
4: that was a fantastic opening In. I think it's really good when you speak specifically to the ongoing divide as you did and really spoke to the chiefs and our shared responsibility to ensure that there's the proper justice. I would like to hear from other practitioners with respect to your thoughts on the divide and where we go.
6: I'll go. This is Linda Williams. And first of all, I want to thank and commend uh, my fellow members that are out there on the front line. Uh, Chief Hall and Chief Williams and you, Mr. Anderson, that are out there. It's one thing to have the practicality of doing it and just teaching it. You know, noble, our creed is being in the conscience of law enforcement. And we do that by justice, by action. And those are not just words. I mean, we have to walk the walk and talk the talk. But in order to resolve a problem, you have to acknowledge there is a problem. And if I can echo what Chief Hall said, we have to uh, we have to realize there are some systemic racism, there are some injustices that we don't see that human factor. When we don't see someone as human, we treat them and regard them less than. And until we can understand that there are cultural diversities, there's racial diversities, and we have to respect each other, even if we don't condone everything that they do. But in this world, in this country, we were created, you know, on those freedoms because I look different, act differently, and like she said, culture uh, eats policy for dinner. We have a right to express ourselves to be who we are as long as it's in alliance with with our policies and and laws and government. Until we sit down at the table, that is the politician, that's the community members, and that's law enforcement. And until we can respect what each one gives as a contributing member of society, we won't respect each other and we won't give each other our just due. So even with that, it comes down to basic respect, you know, that policemen and law enforcement are an extension of, this, uh, of the community, that we're here as guardians, not as warriors, not as an occupying force, because all of us, whether we're plain clothes or uniform, when we come out of these clothes, when we put that badge to the side, we're citizens. We're your church members, we're the people at the grocery store and whatever, until we can recognize and respect even in our differences, that we all are contributing factor. And we have to acknowledge that there are things that have, have existed that have put you know, you know, on the shoulders of many. When we see a wrong, you have to acknowledge it. You have to make peace about that and then intentionally and purposely learn and move forward to that. So again, we as an organization of NOBLE, uh, we, we have their justice by action, but it shows that we have to have accountability and transparency as it relates to law enforcement and as well as that feedback from the
4: community. Fantastic. Um, You know, I've often heard our chief Williams here speak specifically to her leadership with respect to not just being a leader in one community, which we all respect, but a leader that brings cohesion to all communities. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this chief.
1: So first, thank you to everyone for being on the call to my, Sister from another, Mr. Chief Hall, so good to see you. Haven't seen your lovely face in a while. It seems like it's been forever since chiefs have gotten together. Uh, and to Linda, hey sister, how are you? How are you so good. Lord, good, Good seeing folks on the call. So as we're talking through this process, words that resonate with me is listen and action. So it is one thing for us to say that we're listening and we're hearing. It's another thing for police execs, nobles, practitioners, and others to actually act on what we are hearing. To Chief Hall's point, no longer can we police the way we think we should police. We really need to listen to our community members to find out how they wish to be policed um, and make no bones about it. Law enforcement has done things to, to damn our profession. Fact. That, that As, as fact, that's, oh, now, it's not all of us. It's not 100% of us. I would beg to say that, it, that it's a slim majority, but that slim majority has now created the rising of voices, much like I've never seen in, in my 30 years of being in law enforcement, and, and it's actually resonating with a subsect of our community that is tired of seeing people march and sit-ins and do this and that they're, they're the way they are because they want action and they want it now. One of the challenges though for law enforcement executives right now is that we're dealing with systemic problems that, that were built on hundreds of years of X, whatever your X could be. This new generation wants this entire ship to pivot on a dime and I, and I can't pivot this ship on a dime. I can make some incremental changes. We can talk about culture. We can work through training. We can work through what it looks like as a community. But to try to get the systemic changes that they want is going to take a couple of things. I actually said this to a group of them, is that they need to get out and vote. Because some of the things that stop me from doing what I do are state laws. Some of the things that stop me from doing what I do our county laws, our, our federal codes. So if you want to see change, you need to get out and vote, and perhaps you could be some of the policymakers to write
4: those changes into law. Thank you. Thank you. And I, Professor Majokin. I know we've had an opportunity to hear you speak specifically to these issues. It's, it's always important and interesting to hear the academic side as well as your experience as an attorney. Would you like to say a few things about the topic? Absolutely. And let me just start by saying thank you all for having me
2: here. I'm delighted to be part of this conversation. Uh, I think it's very important how we talk about the way in which police can mend their relationships uh, with the community. Obviously, this is a key time for that. In terms of the academic side of things, what I'm seeing largely are calls for two things from police departments currently. The two pillars are what I would say is responsibility and accountability. In terms of responsibility, one of the things is that but this is a time for police departments to step up and lead. Uh, It can't simply be reactive to what's happening out there, but it's time to be proactive about changing department cultures, department policies. You know, in the last three years, DOJ dismantled a bunch of consent decrees that uh, would have ensured reforms in certain cities that needed reforming. We don't have good data on what works specifically because some of those policies never got a chance um, and so it's it's time for departments to step up and say that they're going to make these changes on their own uh, without outside influences, holding them accountable. In terms of holding accountable, one of the other things on responsibilities, um, and, and you all have mentioned this, actually, but I think it's key that police departments acknowledge past harms. Right? Not even necessarily the harms that came out of your department that happened in your states, but across the country, right, we've seen unequal policing uh, and we've seen certain individuals who have been subject to harms that never should have happened under color of law. And I think that until people see police departments acknowledging that, taking it seriously, not getting entrenched and defensive about the, you know, that it's not everyone, but acknowledging that some bad things have happened and it's time for a change, I think that's gonna go a long way towards mending fences. In terms of accountability, I think people need to see officers holding each other accountable. Right. For far too long, we've had narratives about Blue Wall of Silence, for example, right? uh, where officers aren't willing to acknowledge misconduct when they see it. Right? They're not willing to report on misconduct when they see it. And I think that people in the community want to see officers holding each other to higher standards. Right? If, if there are bad apples, people want to see them get called out. And then people want to see them held accountable. That's the other bit. Um, There's been a lot of talk recently about qualified immunity. I hope we talk about that a little bit uh, today. But in general, I think that there's a notion among certain communities that police are above the law or they're beyond reach. And that leads to a lot of distrust. And so I think that to the extent we can continue to see police sort of stepping up and owning uh, mistakes when they happen, acknowledging harms that have happened, working to correct things that go wrong, um, and working to hold one another accountable. I think those will make huge inroads. And then the last thing, you know, in terms of changing culture, in terms of changing the organization, I, I agree that a big part of that has to come from partnerships with community and right? community organizations, um, understanding the people that you're policing. Right? You all are part of the community. We're all part of the fabric of our community. But I think one of the reasons that police are being asked to do more and more these days, is that the sense of community that might have existed in, in older times doesn't exist as much anymore. People, you know, live in big urban environments, they don't know their neighbors, so they call on police to do things that they might have done for themselves. And so in order for you all to be seen as part of a community, you have to work actively to try to facilitate that sense of community, the sense that we're all in this together, um, that we're working towards the same goals. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I think, so those are my two sort of big prongs here is responsibility and accountability. Um, step up to leadership reforms that need to happen and then hold each other accountable. And that would be my, my suggestions right away on what needs to happen.
4: Wow, these are outstanding segues and appreciate all the great things you've said. I believe it'll be something that those that are listening to glean from and learn as law enforcement leaders With that being said, Dawn, I believe you have the next question.
3: I do. Thank you. Um, So there's been a lot of discussion and calls to defund the police, as it's called, and to do away with qualified immunity for police officers. Do you think that defunding the police departments, i.e. shifting funds to other programs, such as adding social workers to police departments um, or removing that blanket of immunity that some members of the public believe protects bad conduct of police officers would be positive steps um, towards building that community trust. And if you do or don't, can you explain why or why you don't support any of those changes? whoever wants to jump in
1: this is jerry chief williams so let, let's first talk qualified immunity can that change and be adjusted i believe it can but but i have to speak to the fact that qualified immunity protects me as a police chief when i make a decision to terminate someone that protects me so if you do away with qualified immunity then you do away with my ability chiefs hall's ability other police chiefs abilities to terminate employees who need to be terminated so, so you can't just say deal away with qualified immunity and everybody's happy and okay. Um, it, it needs to be some further discussion and dialogue. So we've actually talked in the major city chiefs organization about looking at subsects of that to see what can we do. On the flip side, if I'm a good police officer And something happens on my watch that that's gonna happen because policing isn't the most beautiful thing on the face of the planet, quite frankly, it's pretty nasty and ugly and, and crazy sometimes. So me as a good police officer, that protects me as a good police officer. So I would caution us to I I don't wanna say don't look at qualified immunity, but just know that qualified immunity protects those of us who want to make systemic changes in law enforcement. As far as defunding the police, you, you defund me, who's going to take care of the bad guys out there? Because there are people in this world who still want to hurt, harm, maim, rape, abuse individuals in the community. So you need an entity to manage that and take care of that. Uh, any, any police chief nowadays would say, if you could take the homeless calls, the mental health calls, um, the social service calls off the backs of policing, sign me up all day. Because then I can force my, my resources into dealing with things that mitigate violent crime. And quite frankly, violent crime is going up like crazy um, in the city of Phoenix, and I think across the country. So I, I would caution all of us to tread lightly, but I'm certain you won't find many police chiefs are going to say, hey, sign me up to be the mental health, the social services,
5: the homeless, the other things. So those would be my, my thoughts. I will just echo my sister from another mister um, who I love dearly and has been a mentor for me. I will, when when we talk about defunding the police department, uh, we really need to qualify. What does that mean? Uh, Because when we look at, when I look at defunding the police department, again, as to Chief Williams's point, we do everything. When you get bit by a dog, you call the police. Homeless person sleeping on the street, call the police. You know, mental health calls, call the police. So if we're talking about taking those 1,500 calls a month from mental illness that that comes into my department and taking those sleeping on the street calls that come in about 337 a month, or we talk about those mauled uh, uh, individuals from a, 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 a rabbit dog or something that come in maybe 100, 115 per month away from the the Dallas police department, the Phoenix police department, and you're saying that that, those monies that we're spending responding to those calls, we'll take off that and I can get my capital back, which means my men and women of the police department and send them to ensure that they're getting to those calls for service at an acceptable minute um, and that we are able to attack violent crime. Then I say, take those necessary dollars and allocate them to some city service, some animal uh, rights or animal cruelty section, take it to the homeless Office of Homeless Solutions, take it to a mental health facility within the the, the city that responds to those entities. Now we currently in the city of Dallas have a right care program, which is partnered with clinicians, fire department and, and police, but it takes one sergeant and four police officers to go to that one particular call, which five individuals, that's five FTEs, and we're talking about at the Sergeant level and high level of police officers. So those dollars, if they're allocated to individuals who are skilled and qualified to be able to handle those calls, because when we get there and an individual is wailing a knife and they're mentally ill, my only recourse is a gun. And so should I be the person responding to that if that is not the outcome that we're looking for? So we don't, I think we have to qualify defunding. Um, No, I don't think any police chief is going to say if there's a way to pull from our budget and put the, the kind of resources in the city that will get the services that they need and give us back our capital, I don't think any of us would, would, would uh, raise our, I mean, uh, lower our hand and say, no, we, we're not for that. So I think we all agree there. As it relates to qualified immunity, it's going to be debated from the House to the Senate as it should be. But what I will only do in this instance is ask the question, who is going to do this job? If every time I go and respond to a call for service, I have to be concerned about whether my home is going to be taken away from me, my children's college fund that I've been saving, the pension that I've worked so hard for, who's going to do this job? Who's gonna stay in this job? And then the other question is, we have an opportunity to bring individuals into law enforcement who can change the trajectory of what, where we're going and what we're doing how is this job going to be attractive to them if they have to be worried about finances in the, in the midst of doing their job? Because I am a spiritual individual. Everyone who knows me knows that. And the Bible tells us that on our best at our best, we're equivalent to a filthy rag. And so if that is the case, even when we go out to do the very best, sometimes we come up short. And if that is the option that we end up with nothing in trying to do our best. I'm just concerned about who's going to do the job. Now, I will say, and I believe that these these things are in place and we can dig down and, and, and divulge them even more, but for those officers who show reckless disregard for proper procedure, those individuals who violate the law and the policies of an organization, then no, they should not be entitled to qualified immunity. But it's in those instances that we need to to do that. I'm just concerned about what it looks like when we make it a blanket statement.
2: I'd like to jump in at this point, actually, uh, just to follow up on some of what Chief Hall talked about and try to bring some of the academic perspective to bear on that. Uh, To start with, I just want to say, so I am very much in favor of defunding as a movement if we're talking about it in the same way that you all have been talking about it, which is unbundling some of the services uh, that have been sort of put on your backs and finding other places uh, where we could allocate those resources to produce different solutions, different outcomes. I do a lot of work on policing homelessness, and so this is an area that I'm particularly interested in. Uh, I will say that, you know, I think of defunding is probably the wrong word for it because people think of it as abolishing, right? And I don't think that that's what anybody is arguing for, certainly not very many people, but I see it more as a recognition that there are different types of social problems that require different types of solutions. In fact, each semester I teach a class on police law and society. And the very first reading I have my students do is an article called, Are the Police Necessary? It was written by a former police officer who turned into a philosophy professor. Uh, And his primary point is people don't understand what the police actually do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Police are judged in the common sentiment by their ability to catch criminals and solve crimes. And that's what we romanticize. That's what's on TV. You watch Law and Order, right? And it's about getting the bad guy. And people don't think about the fact that, you know, police are tasked with stuff like, you know, getting calls to quiet the party next door, right? To shoo away the homeless person from in front of your business, uh, to come check the basement because you heard a strange noise, or to, you know, help somebody stranded on the side of the highway. So, The funny thing to me though is that I give the students this article. It was written in 1975, right? We've known since 1975 that that the bulk of the police function is a bunch of things that don't necessarily have to do with catching bad guys. And so I think that we've understood for a long, long time, nearly half a century, right, that we've been overburdening police with tasks that in all likelihood could be done more cheaply by others with a different skill set, and that would give trained officers the ability to focus on crime solving, crime prevention. And so to the extent that we can figure out ways to allocate our resources so that calls about, say, mental health crises or homelessness or substance abuse are being directed away from police departments and towards social workers or counselors or medical staff, uh, I'm all for that. I think that that's a smart use of municipal resources. On the qualified immunity point, so this is an area that, that Chief Hall and I might be in a little bit of disagreement And so I can only talk about it from the academic perspective. You all are on the front lines, and I I defer immensely to your perspective on this. I've always thought of qualified immunity as uh, a good idea that turned out to be ineffective in practice, right? Uh, So there were sort of three primary justifications for qualified immunity that in the abstract seem great, right? And the first one is that we don't want individual officers to go bankrupt if something goes wrong when they're in the field, right? We don't want them to be personally liable. The second is that it was supposed to reduce costs of litigation, municipal litigation expenses, when suits that otherwise were going to be uh, unlikely to succeed had to go through the whole discovery process, right? Uh, And then the third thing is that it was supposed to ensure that when you're in the field, you can do a vigorous job without looking over your shoulder. You don't have to worry that you're going to get sued for every misstep or every wrong action. You can just do your job to the best of your ability. And that also means that it's, you know, you're gonna be able to hire people who are not having to worry about individual uh, liability. The problem is that scholarly research, uh, especially Joanna Schwartz at UCLA Law has recently done a lot of research on this. And what we're finding is that in a lot of places, even when officers are held liable, so despite qualified immunity, they've done something egregiously wrong, uh, individual officers are frequently reimbursed by their municipality, and the municipalities are frequently reimbursed by private insurers. So to the extent that we're worried about individual officer liability, some of that gets uh, sort of thrown out in the wash because as as an actual practice, we have insurance for this, much in the way that we have private insurance for medical malpractice or various other things. So there there is a possibility of at least narrowing the scope of qualified immunity in a way that doesn't mean that officers have to be panicked about going bankrupt. Um, The other bit about that is that it actually hasn't reduced litigation costs substantially. So Professor Schwartz found that in something like 99% of cases that were eventually thrown out because of qualified immunity, they progressed past discovery largely through all of the costly parts of the litigation. And so if it's not saving money and if it's not actually a thing that's protecting individual officers because private insurance is already covering that, then there's a question about whether it's a good idea to have such broad qualified immunity that it's insulating some fairly egregious conduct. Um, And maybe there's a way to narrow that. I I actually love uh, what I heard from Chief Williams about being able to sort of pick and choose where the immunity is, including immunity for being able to fire officers who have, you know, committed misconduct. Obviously, we don't want a number of uh, wrongful termination suits from officers when you guys are trying to do your best to change the culture. So... Uh, I'm sensitive to all of that, but I just wanted to point out that the trend in the legal literature at the moment suggests that some of the concerns that motivated the doctrine don't seem to be bearing out in the way that cities and counties are handling this. Um, it's, It's going through a lot of private insurance. And so that might be a good reason to reconsider whether it's a needed doctrine.
6: Okay, I'll come in and bring in the end part. You know, as a criminal justice professor and a retired federal agent for 30 years, my mantra to my students is where academia meets reality and you know, of course, everything that uh, Ben has just stated, that's what's taught and, and of course, that's what's in the textbook. But of course, when you want to know the truth, you talk to the people that have been out there like Chief Paul and Chief, Chief Williams and Andre himself reality of it all. And when we talk about defunding, I think it's most important that we understand because everybody has a different definition of the word. You know, one of the things about policing is the most glorified and, you know, uh, just magnificent looking on television and Hollywood screens. But in reality, we know it's the most unappreciative, you know, those hours and all the things that you have to put up with but we can't imagine a society or a world without law enforcement. And so with that, defunding is, you know, in law enforcement, it's taboo to us because, again, if we didn't do that, who would do that? Who would make all of those random calls? And so we look at it, like you said, maybe a reallocation of funds because we do realize a lot of policing takes in those uh, homelessness and mental illness and other things that police officers could do uh, and, and allocate with their times. And so again, that the reallocation, because even when you take that example in New Jersey, where they have dismantled that police, that police department, there's no such thing as a society without law. So you're still going to have to have accountability and, and responsibility, whatever format, whatever entity that you, you, you create. And last but not least, when we talk about immune, uh, qualified immunity, there's about one size that fit all, like Chief Williams says, Now you want an officer and you want police officer to be able to do their jobs without fear of, you know, walking on eggshells and that they'll be held liable for everything that they do. But you do want them to be responsible that they cannot hide behind that. So it's, it has to strike a good balance between policies and from the top of that police organization all the way down, what is expected and even that accountability. And then there's consequences when you don't meet that. So again, it's a light balance and it's, it's a purposeful balance to be able to realize that there are there is work to be done. But again, to be able to do that with appreciation from the community that you serve.
3: Yeah, so it sounds to me like there needs to be a discussion and education within um, society uh, and to flesh out what we mean when we say defunding the police, because we, we've all seen it on social media. It's like, we can't get rid of the police. Well, that's not really what defunding the police means. It means spreading out resources. Um, <laughs> and like you said, Chief Williams, you, you don't want to be called out for everything under the sun, mental health issues that you just don't have the resources to adequately address. So I think that is definitely a conversation that we need to have with the community um, as far as educating them and what that actually means to the to the departments and to the communities to when we talk about getting rid of qualified immunity um, because you you raised a good point, Chief Williams, when you said, well, that 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 hinders me from getting rid of a bad officer, and that's not something that's not a perspective that I, thought about or considered. So I think that would be something that the public would definitely be interested in, in learning about. Andre, I think that you have the next
4: question. Wonderful. Great answers, and uh, quite frankly, Professor Wajunkin, I don't think that you and uh, Chief Hall were too far, far apart. So outstanding answers. So the next question will be, what shift in culture do you believe can be done in the future to reduce the number of shootings?
5: I'm going to take that one first. This is Chief Hall. So I think oftentimes in law enforcement, we teach officers what they should do. We have um, use of force. We have a force continuum that says, as the individual escalates, so shall the police officer and they are able to escalate to a higher level. And so we continue to teach that and we see that played out in many of these shootings. And some of our go-to phrases in law enforcement is, I feared for my safety, I feared for my life. And so we use that often. Uh, And I'm not here to say whether it's true, false, or indifferent, I'm saying we teach that because that's how we teach. So we teach what you should do in a situation. We are going to have to shift in this new era of policing in what you could do. We have to have go. We have to go from what you should to what you could. There has to be alternative solutions to force, and we have to teach that it is okay and acceptable to disengage from a situation. So there's no um, no no fear of. Uh, you know where you know I'm soft or you know I'm 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 afraid because we have have gone from saving the life of one to saving the life of two. That has to be the 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 the, the teaching and the model moving forward. Officers have to understand that there are more than there's one there is more than one way to end a situation. And our goal, our our top goal It's not just for us to come home safe, but for that individual to also return to their home safely. And we have not done a good job in the area of policing and teaching that because it's about our safety. I can ask every professional on this telephone, I mean, on this panel right now about uh, what they've taught, what they've learned in their career, what you learn at the gun range, what you learn in the training academy and it is about survival. It is about safety. It is about community engagement, and it is about de-escalating, but de-escalating is not disengagement. Sometimes you have to allow an individual to go away, even if they're running away um, from something that may be violent. As long as they're not posing any danger to the community or any one particular person, We've identified you, we know who you are, and we can get you at a later date. And so that has to be the recourse and it has to be acceptable. But again, it also has to be acceptable to the community because that individual who has been harmed has a desired outcome that I want you to get that person who did X to me, who assaulted me, who shot my loved one. And so there has to be a re-education, there has to be retraining, And definitely on the part of policing, we gotta go from should to could, and we have to give our officers more tools in their tool belt than the gun, the the spray, the nightstick, the taser. We have to say it's okay to disengage back up and, and let it go for now because everybody ends up safe this way. That's probably not really popular, but we have to get there.
6: And this is Linda Williams, if I can just echo in that what she's saying. Noble has a program called the Law in Your Community. And so we teach those young people how to interact and their expectation when they come into law enforcement. But I echo that a little further and tell my students as well as those people that I'm speaking to, your goal is to get home safely every night. And I know as law enforcement, uh, being in law enforcement and these chiefs and every gun carrier, our goal is to come home safely every night. And so, as Chief Paul just said, it comes back down to that basic communication and that skill set. There's so many times that we fail to do that. You know, we have a battery of tests that, you know, when you come on board that you have to complete. But do we focus really, like you say, on de-escalation and other alternatives? Do we come down to that key valuable thing of communication. Because even if I disagree with you, if I can communicate with you, we can find a resolve and not automatically go all the way to the top of the rung. So if it comes down to just that we both have this 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 desire that we're trying to each come home safely at night. If I respect you and the, and the job that you're doing and you respect me as my rights as a citizen, then of course we can help change that culture Collaboratively, as we respect each other and the
1: life of one another. So this is Jerry, the other Williams online. Uh, I totally concur and agree with everything that was said. We do need to figure out ways to give officers different tools. But if we begin with the end in mind, how about we not send officers in the first place to things that they shouldn't go to in the first place? And then the tools that we have on our tool belt, the training that we have well We'll meet apples with apples versus apples with oranges so i I, I would love to think that in a world that we could have everyone do what we're asking them to do, everyone to follow suit, everyone to do what we want them to do, the reality is it's not it's not reality and so again, I go back to my previous statement um, and this was actually said by one of the community members the boogeyman is real, so there are real folks out there that want to really harm people and it and uh, we all know this, for at least those of us who are police officers, it, it takes us a skill set to go from talking calmly to someone to transitioning to having to use force. There, it's, it, it's this unique dynamic that's in there. So, so how can we create that dynamic where the officers are still safe and the community members are still safe, but at the same time, if they need to do something... That could be dangerous, i.e. deadly, they should be able to do it, but still do it with compassion, still still do it with respect, still do it with, you know, talking to someone. And if it happens to be an officer involved shooting, how do we show compassion to that family later? You know, do, are, we, are we trying to get medical aid to the individual that two seconds ago pointed a gun at me or shot at me? Are are we making sure we roll fire? Are we making sure we're providing copies of the report to the family? Are we making sure that the family, regardless of what their loved one did, it's still someone's son, brother, husband, community member. It's still some attachment to whoever that individual is. So those would be my thoughts for today.
2: First of all, I just want to say that it's uh, incredibly inspiring to hear Chief Hall and Chief Williams uh, in particular suggest Uh, disengagement and suggests uh, not putting officers in places where there might be the need to resort to deadly force in the first place. Uh, I think those are fantastic and enlightened solutions to these problems. I want to say, I want to take a slightly different tact on this and just say that uh, as the law professor in the room, one of the things that is important is for police departments to decide to utilize use of force policies, engagement and disengagement policies, that go above constitutional baselines. Uh, The Constitution, and this is, you guys know this, but for our listeners, right? The Constitution, it does very, very little to rein in police shootings, uh, to rein in the use of force. I mean, frankly, what the Constitution guarantees is a right to be free from unreasonable seizures, right? That's that's the only thing that prohibits constitutionally, uh, prohibits officers from, from using deadly force is whether or not a seizure is reasonable. Uh, And on top of that, our courts interpreting the Constitution have dedicated themselves to erasing the role of race in decisions about the use of deadly force. And in 1968, right, the case of uh, Terry v. Ohio is one of the only instances the Supreme Court has ever actually talked about race in one of their criminal procedure cases. And what the court in in, in that case said, actually what the court said is that it's perfectly acceptable police conduct to stop and frisk an individual, which we know has ended up leading to uh, the disparate stop question and frisk policies in certain jurisdictions. Uh, But what the court said in that case, when briefed on the issue that this was going to have a disparate impact on people of color, they said, we can't solve racism with court opinion, so we're going to pretend that it doesn't happen. In Tennessee versus Garner, this is a 1985 case where the court said that you can't shoot an unarmed fleeing juvenile. The NAACP briefed the court on the racial implications of use of force policies. Uh, And when the opinion came out, the court said nothing about it. In fact, doesn't even acknowledge the race of the parties in the case itself. And so all of this is a long way of saying that our constitutional baselines, the protections that individual citizens have against the possibility of police use of force, are extremely low. And I think the general public doesn't understand that. And so it's up to police departments to take affirmative steps to control the use of force policies that they implement. It's up to uh, departments to decide that they want to do better than what the Constitution allows if we want to reduce the instances of uh, police shootings. I also want to say that I, you know, again, echoing what Chief Williams says, and this goes back to the defunding argument, I think the simplest way to think about reducing uh, the need to use deadly force is to simply reduce the number of instances where we're having police respond um, to engage with community members that might result in deadly force being needed. I, I think it was Chief Williams earlier, it might have been Chief Hall, I apologize if I'm misattributing this, uh, but you know whoever said that if you don't want us to resort to using a gun, right, you need to send somebody else with a different set of tools. Uh, and I think that that's essential. I mean, I really think that that's something that we all need to latch onto and understand is that the, before we get to de-escalation, before we get to the use of force continuum, uh, we have to ask ourselves, you know, is it that we want trained officers with deadly weapons in particular sets of situations, uh, especially when we're talking about stuff like mental instability, right? That can be scary. And if we're conducting training that teaches people that they need to protect themselves and that they are aware, acutely aware of the potential threats, in each of these situations, uh, right? Like that can be an instance where use of force is overused when we could have other kinds of techniques uh, used by people with other skill sets.
4: Wonderful, wonderful, great answers. Here's a question that many people are looking for an answer for, and that is: What strategies do you believe should be implemented by the police to improve the perception? Many have that the culture of policing does not treat black African-Americans with dignity and respect.
1: So this is Chief Williams. I'll, I'll start with that one. Uh, some of it is the proof is in the pudding. It's, it, it's one thing to say that it's part of our mission statement. It's another thing to say that it's in operations orders. Uh nowadays, Andre, we have to show people what we're doing to actually have those images of us engaging and interacting with different people of color, not necessarily just African Americans, but just different groups and different entities. I think those images and those stories go a long way. But it's also just really re-emphasizing to the rank and file and to our members. I know Chief Hall has a slew of humans, too, that, that she's managing, but constantly messaging the fact that we are all human, that regardless of how we approach or come up on a call, regardless of what part of town, regardless of what you look like, regardless of whether you're homeless or not, we have a responsibility to be professional and humanize things all the time. And, and at the end of the day, um, it was actually, I, I believe it was someone from the Department of Justice. So we've called the Department of Justice in on a couple of occasions and have had a really good working relationship with them as far as their community reconciliation goes is it's not necessarily what you say, especially when it comes to black folks, it's how you say it. So so if if I roll to a call and I see Jerry Williams stealing something, why am I yelling and screaming at Jerry Williams? Jerry knows she's gonna go to jail because the police are there. Just figure out a way to be compassionate and professional at all times. But I, but I think the proof is in the pudding. We can't say that we do it anymore. We actually have to have proof and documentation um, of that happening not just on Juneteenth, not just once a month during Black History Month, through, through the entire encounter and, and annually, um, I think we need to constantly reinforce that message. I'll to echo just
6: what my sister said, you know, it comes down to that human factor that we see each other as a human being. When you see someone less than that, you'll treat them less than that. And, and regardless what our skin color is and what it is, that human respect and if we can respect each other, I always say, if you don't respect me, then you know, you'll know you say or do anything. And a lot of times, given the same situation, regardless, uh, it could be the same age, but a different race, and they're treated differently. And so once you respect a person, even with their diversity, with their cultural differences, but it comes down to that that factor, Am I communicating with a human? Am I you know, not aligning a, a cost uh, or a price to how valuable that life is? But yet I'm talking to another individual because that's somebody's son, that's somebody's brother, that's somebody's husband, that's somebody's child. And so again, that human respect, and you know, we almost have to take it right back down to what all the other training, that communication and that cult, cultural diversity so that we can understand that we are different but we all are of the human race. I had to say that Renee before I forget. (laughs) That's okay.
5: (laughs) Uh, I I appreciate that. I just wanna say that um, I'm I'm echoing uh, what both of my sisters have said uh, and saying that we have to first take our own temperature as well. And that's through cultural assessment. What we're doing right now in the Dallas Police Department is conducting uh, a cultural assessment so we can see Uh, what those drivers of behavior actually are and what our community and share those results with our community so they can see um, what's our starting point. And then where we're going and where we plan to be and our, our standard for the department has to be woven into the fabric of everything we are. It has to be in our mission statement as Chief Williams says, in our vision statement, it's in our actions, but it ultimately has to be in our data. So when you look at our racial profiling data, our traffic uh, data, our, our interaction with the community, it needs, to, it needs to say that we are not stopping only African-Americans. We are not only arresting African-Americans with low-level uses of marijuana. That it needs to be equal across the board. If our uh, communities are diverse and the city of Dallas has, is so diverse So then our numbers need to be extremely diverse uh, in order for us to, to show our community what we're doing, because it's no longer. Gone are the days of having a conversation and talking and showing up at the church event, at the, you know, baby's birthday party, you know, and doing the dog and pony show of police in the community. It has to be proof in the pudding. It has to be real, tangible, so that people can believe it. Um, and, and, And do I believe that we have intentionally been doing dog and pony shows? No. But I believe what we have been trying to create is an image of what systemically and systematically does not exist. And so now it's time to Uh, wipe the slate clean, start from scratch, do the assessment, here's what you have. I'll say in the Dallas Police Department, we have four separate associations for police, but they're divided by race. We have a Black Police Association, a Hispanic Police Association, a white police association that's made up of of, of multi-groups, but predominantly white, and then an Asian. And so if we are divided within our own organization, how, again, can we show our community that somehow we have everybody's best interests at heart? So it's, it's work and it's proof, it's proof in the pudding.
2: All right, so my suggestion on this is probably politically outrageous, but I'm taking it from the, if I could wave a magic wand and, and see the world in a different way. Uh, honestly, one of the things that I would love to see is more police departments come out in support of reallocating some of their own funding to invest in communities of color. Uh, starting with the basic idea that the goal of police is to prevent crime, right, not catch criminals, uh, that by the time we get to an arrest, there's already been a failure somewhere in the system, right, that the crime has already happened, and now we're taking an individual and we're putting them part of the criminal justice system, which is bad for that individual. Um, We're using our social resources for the arrest, the booking, the trial, the incarceration, right, that's bad for society. If we could take some of that money and reinvest it, there are other ways of preventing crime. What we do know is that investments in education, in jobs, in stable housing, in mental health services, in health care, all these kinds of government services also reduce crime. Uh, And so how powerful of an image would it be to see police leaders standing up and saying, we want the city to use some of our funds to make low-income schools better, right? To create homes for the homeless. Uh, that we would rather be investing in the success of our communities than just in patrolling its failures. Uh, I think that would be a beautiful and powerful image.
5: I do want to say one thing, um, and I had this conversation earlier at a, at a community meeting. Um, and Chief Williams and Chief uh, former uh, well first. National President uh, Williams, you may remember earlier in 2019, last year, uh, violent crime was up in the city of Dallas, and I made a statement at a press conference and said that you know there was all this, this tension and pressure on the chief, like you know crime is up, what are you doing? And I made a statement and said that until we until we address education, training the individuals returning back to the community uh, from prison with no jobs and no opportunities that my ability to affect crime was going to be limited because people are almost forced into a life of crime. I almost lost my job because I said that. Now today, that conversation is acceptable. So I would just say to you that there are some progressive police chiefs who have wanted to have that conversation and even tried, But at some point, you know, the, the reality you know had to come come full uh, full circle but I just want you to know that that's a conversation that we have but when a police chief talks about socioeconomics no one wants to hear that they only want to hear that you're going to stop the murders you're going to prevent the shootings you're going to stop the theft um, and that's all we want to talk about so I would say I'm thankful to God that 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 these conversations are at the forefront because we all understand that there are some systemic issues that get you to the crime no matter what city whether it's phoenix dallas baltimore chicago detroit wherever there are poor people there's going to be crime and until we invest in that space we're never going to change that narrative i just needed to say that
1: i think there's this misperception too that police chiefs are the all-powerful Right, All powerful. I can wave my magic wand and boom, things can happen. So I answer to a boss who answers to bosses who answers to other people. Um, And to Chief Hall's point, we've all been caught uh, saying things that our hearts believe are true, um, but that we are not permitted to or it's not kosher for us to say it at the time. So, um, I, you, you know, all the things that the members of the community think that I can do in this position with employees, um, we need to better educate folks on the challenges and what my parameters or what our parameters are, because I, I don't believe people understand and know what we can and can do.
2: I think that's an excellent point. And I do think that there needs to be more communica- community education about Um, frankly, what's possible, what's feasible, right? This is a moment of great sort of social interest in policing, but it comes with that same backdrop that the public understanding of the way the police work is limited at best. Uh, One of the things that I want to pick up on that Chief Hall said, and this actually echoes something that Chief Williams, you said earlier as well, which was You mentioned that it'd be nice if you could get rid of some of the responsibilities that aren't strictly policing responsibilities. So you could channel your resources into dealing with violent crime. We've been talking about treating, uh, communities of color with dignity and respect, but primarily in the sense of policing communities of color, right? That is arresting individuals, making sure that our um, statistics bear out the communities that we're policing. One of the things that we don't tend to talk about, but, um, probably should is talk about the racial implications of victims right and the way in which if we were able to better channel police resources to dealing with violent crime we might be able to help more victims of color who are victims of violent crime we know that the violent crime disproportionately impacts people of color and we know that aside from murder frankly uh, clearance rates on any kind of crime are under fifty percent right so people are more likely to get away with a crime than not. And I think that one of the ways that we can enhance police legitimacy would be to focus more resources on dealing with violent crime, especially in communities of color, which is challenging, right? Research has demonstrated that police find it more difficult to solve crimes in Black communities where they find less people willing to participate, less people willing to like to, to assist. But those kinds of efforts to treat the victims of crime and not just the suspects, in terms of dignity and respect, and making sure that we get justice for them, might also go a long way.
4: You know, I just want to add one thing, uh, a couple things to what I heard. First of all, Chief Hall, I really appreciate you speaking uh, with respect to what we call tired conversations that have taken place in the community, and people are looking for authentic, authenticity, they're looking for genuine leaders. And so I will add this, anyone that knows anything about you three women leaders, Chiefs will know that you have a great deal of courage and that you've exemplified that throughout your entire career. So I understand what Chiefs Williams is saying with respect to being somewhat concerned or maybe held back from doing perhaps many things that she could. But know that in this community, we respect you and know that you have the courage and you're making great changes, and so are all of you.
0: A final question as we begin to close out today's episode. Uh, Police Chief Williams, about four years ago, you became the first woman and second person of color to be chief of police for the fifth biggest city in America, Phoenix. And Police Chief Hall, you are Dallas's first female police chief. What drew you to becoming police chiefs and what does it mean to you? Uh, so we'll close out on this question.
5: Okay, so I guess I'll start by saying that one, I never wanted to be the police. I think we need to start with that. My, my goals were uh, to be an attorney. And as God would have it, uh, my father was killed in the line of duty in the city of Detroit when I was six months old. So law enforcement wasn't something that I gravitated to, but as I said before, as God would have it, I ended up uh, in law enforcement after my graduate school professor said that he thought that I would be a great asset to to law enforcement. He predicted my whole future. He said I'd be a lieutenant by seven years and one day I'd be a police chief. Uh, So when I joined the police department, I loved everything about our responsibility, uh, what we were able to do, the impact that we could make in our communities. And so after getting into it, like anything, you want to be the absolute best. You wanna do everything that you could possibly do to uh, perfect uh, your craft and the profession as a whole. So uh, when I recognized uh, how uh, our actions in law enforcement, who we are and, and the the morals and values that you brought into this, this career could change communities, I always wanted to do it at the highest level that I possibly could. I, I realized that the higher you went, the more impact that you could make. And so um, I started and said, you know, I wanted to, to do it to the very best. And that meant going as, as far as I could go as high as I could. So I'm thankful to God for where uh, I've ended up. i uh, thankful for the impact uh, that ha- I've been able to make in Detroit and now in the city of Dallas. There's so much more to do. Uh, I feel like I haven't done enough, uh, but as long as God allows me uh, this platform, I promise that I will listen to our community, hear what they are saying, and make the necessary adjustments and take the necessary actions to continue uh, to to impact our community and make a difference in law enforcement. It is truly a noble profession. I truly believe that you can't do this job unless you care about people uh, and so uh, there, like anything, you have some individuals that get into the profession that may not have the best intentions, but overall, uh, a great place to be, a great career to have. Uh, I cherish it. Uh, I cherish it because my father paid the ultimate sacrifice for it. So this badge cannot be tarnished. It has to continue to have the noble meaning that that we began with. And so uh, that's my reasoning. And thank you, guys. I just want to say. Thank you for allowing me to share a panel with some of your distinguished guests. You guys are amazing. I believe great things are coming out of law enforcement. So God bless each and every one of you. To my sisters, continue the fight. Uh, I love you very much. uh, And i talk to you guys soon. Thank you so much, Chief Hall. Yes, thank
0: you you so much for being here with us today.
1: Bye-bye. Thanks. So from my perspective, I grew up in Phoenix. I was actually the first female police chief in Oxnard, California, first before coming to to Phoenix. So with this tremendous responsibility comes tremendous weight, comes um, tremendous expectations. So being the first female police chief in the city of Phoenix, I've always had to remind my own community, people of color, that I'm not just the black police chief or I'm not just the female police chief, I am the police chief of an entire community and an entire city, which um, offers me the opportunity oftentimes to see things from a different lens because of my culture, because of my upbringing, because of my education, I'm able to see things differently. I'm able to engage with people um, in a different manner and in a different way, but at the same time, I'm still the chief, which means there are 4,000 people who don't all look like me, uh, who still have to have faith and confidence in my leadership abilities and the fact that I am equitable and just uh, in order to make those decisions. So um, the unique dynamic, and I, I think Chief Hall would say this too, um, is that I am recognized everywhere I go. So so there, there, there is no you know, shirking the responsibility, I'm in the grocery store, I'm at church, I'm at the mall, I get recognized. So I always have to um, keep that lens very acute and apparent because what I don't want, I don't want to be the only and last female police chief of the city of Phoenix. So my responsibility is try to make sure that I do this at a level that's going to allow the door to remain open to other women. So men don't necessarily have that cross to bear for lack of a better term I I just want to make sure that I'm not the the last person they actually made a super big deal of my whole swearing in way more of a big deal than I ever wanted um but at the end of the day that the the community was proud to see a female sitting in this place in this space at this moment in time
6: and to um Chief Williams and Chief Hall I am so proud of them uh No one understands it until you have to walk that walk and talk that talk as a female, as a black female. When I started my career with the Secret Service in 1988, I was the only female in my uniform division class. And even as I transitioned over to special agent, um, there was no African American. I was the only woman in my class. But even as we continue to go on, I always believed that I could be the change that I wanted to see that, you know, one of the best compliments that someone would give me was like, wow, I didn't know that I could be that. And so even when I used to tell people that I was Secret Service, you know, they were like, you don't look like a special agent. Well, what does a special agent look like? Because you're looking at one. But again, we have to have, to all of us have been trailblazers to reach back and pull others along. When I came into the Secret Service, there was no female black supervisors. And 30 years later, I was preceded by three others, but at the time of my retirement, I was the highest ranking African-American special, black special agent, and only the second as a female. So even as I, I was able and God bless me to come into the senior executive service, My thing is I wanted to leave this place better than I found it, that I wanted to, you know, the outreach to be different. I wanted the people that, you know, that didn't look like that poster that everybody had aligned to what a secret service looked like, that we all have a special skill set. You know, you don't have to be all bronze, but you got to have a brain and that, you know, strategically, you still have a lot to contribute. And so with that... That was what my desire was, to, to, to be all that I could be. And that if too much is given, much is required. And that's why I'm so happy to look back and even nowadays to get calls from applicants and people that I have introduced to this, to you know coming on to the Secret Service, to see them now you know, align as a special agent in the Secret Service. So people have to see it and it's okay. And I know it's hard to be that trailblazer, but each one of us in our respective role Realized that we had to give up ourselves to be able to pull others and enable others to come behind us.
1: So, so if I if I could just one quick point, though, too. So and, and I don't know how this is going to sound. So I'm just going to say it. So don't don't minimize my leadership ability by saying that I got it because I'm black and female. I got this job because I'm an exceptional leader and an ex- exceptional police exec. I just happen to be black and female. So I, I, I really think that's a, that's a critical point. Linda would say the same thing. Renee would say the, the same exact thing. Please don't minimize the fact that there is no way Linda would be picked, Renee would be picked, Jerry would be picked if our stuff wasn't tight and right and 100% because lord knows there are people out there who would have tried to find the one thing that said that she shouldn't be hired because of we're not very good we're exceptional at our
2: craft and we had to be exceptional in order to make this all work and i don't have anything to chime in on that last bit other than i just wanted to say how much i appreciate getting to be part of this conversation with you all Uh, it is amazing to hear your perspectives I am honored and humbled to have even been invited to talk about this with you guys. And uh, as Chief Williams said, you guys are exceptional, and I think that shows in all of your answers and everything that you guys have had to say about this. So uh, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who participated and for letting me be part of the conversation.
6: Thank you, Absolutely. and I can echo that. I am most humbled to be here. I know Andre reached out to me, but you know you learn from each other. Iron sharpens the iron, and thank you for the opportunity. And again, I'm just bone call away. thank you all and continue to do what you do. Absolutely. And
0: Linda, thank you so much for jumping in on that last question because I read your bio and I was floored. I, I need to, I need to at some point talk to you after this podcast episode because I was uh, definitely inspirational, all of you. Um, when Dawn wrote to me and said, this is our slate of guests uh, for the episode. My jaw dropped. I was like, wow, okay, we're doing this. Uh, so it is an honor. Thank you all for being here. You know, we don't take this topic lightly. And through my podcast and through the work of the Academy for Justice, I, I'm just so grateful that we're able to do this type of work. Thank you. I cannot thank you all enough.
3: Thank you. Um, and uh, we also want to thank um, Noble for uh, the organization, Noble, for joining us. Um, if, if it weren't for Andre's efforts and um, bringing this wonderful, these wonderful guests together, this this wouldn't have been possible. So we really appreciate the collaboration there. And um, Amina, I will let you close out our wonderful podcast that we've had. Well, this uh, is the end of our episode. Uh, We usually try to promise
0: uh, within an hour, but most of the wonderful conversations go past 60 minutes and that's okay. Uh, That usually means a, uh, a, a good discussion was had. So no complaints on that end. First and foremost, want to thank each of you for the education that you offered today. And I'm excited to share this episode
3: with our audience members. Thank you. Thank you, Amina.
2: Appreciate being here.
3: Thank you.